This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello, thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts and I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley. It's great to be with you once again. And coming up on this episode, we will be looking at liquid on Mars. Is there or isn't there? Yeah, no, don't know, maybe. That seems to be the answer. But there's some new information that we're going to water, uh, walk our way through, wade through, if you like, on this episode. Uh, we'll also be looking at news on organic molecules near black holes. What the? And answering some audience questions about uh, how big a rock would be to pitch Earth off its orbit after what we did with the DART mission. And a solar eclipse next year is going to pass over a solar observatory, uh, which is perfect timing and the perfect placement. So we'll find out what difference that makes to observations. That's all coming up on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining us as always is Professor Fred Watson. Now, um, I've just got to do a little bit uh, of work to connect with Fred because um, Fred's computer's getting a bit old and tired. So just give me half a second and we'll get uh, we'll get organised here. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, just keep working on this. Right, we're nearly there. Mm-hmm. I'll go and make a cup of coffee while I wait. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, close, I think. Yep, uh, success. Hello, Fred. Ah, hello, Andrew. <laughs> Very good to see you today. Good to see I, must, you. Uh, I need to put another shilling in the meter to get I this thing so. working properly. I think so, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've been playing with the sound effects on my panel. And, um, <laughs> got some new ones. Oh, I, love, I love one. that sound, though. Yeah. I really do. It was always um, in the back in the day, you knew you'd, you know, once those sounds started playing, you knew you were getting somewhere. Right. Yeah, you wouldn't <laughs> have a clue these days. <laughs> they should just fake it. Yes. <laughs> Uh, It's lots of fun, though. Now, uh, we've got plenty to talk about, and the first thing on the agenda is the um, new evidence. They're calling it new evidence of liquid water beneath the south polar ice cap of Mars. Now, this has been long discussed and debated, and I'm sure there have been some arguments in the halls of science somewhere. Uh, What's the latest? Uh, it, it's a really interesting turn for the, you know, for the probably the positive in terms of what uh, what our evidence is all about. Um, so remember, uh, this story goes back, I think, to 2017. I think it was as long ago as that. Yeah. Uh, when uh, observations uh, made by the uh, Mars Express spacecraft, which is a, an ESA spacecraft in orbit around Mars, uh, radar observations seem to indicate uh, over Mars's south polar cap uh, that there was a layer underneath the ice that must have liquid water in it because of the kind of radar reflection that was being sent back, returned to the spacecraft. 
yeah. um, a, a depth of uh, something like, if I remember rightly, I think that ice sheet is about a kilometre and a half thick. So, you know, down at the bottom of that, there was thought to be uh, this layer of ice. Then there was another paper that came out, which I think has been followed up very recently, actually, uh, with work from the same authors, um, that said, uh, ah, well, wait a minute, it might not be that, because we found radar reflections from places on Earth that don't have ice on, sorry, on Mars that don't have ice on them, um, and that is... uh, Probably due to particular kinds of minerals in the in the underlying rock. I think basalt, uh, basaltic rock, was one of the culprits thought to be giving you this bright radar reflection. I, I thought I heard something to suggest it might be CO two ice as well. Somewhere. Yes, that's right. Uh, I think that I think that's actually what the latest results are about oh, about okay. the possibility oh, of CO. <laughs> So, no, not the ones we're going to talk about now because oh. that's the that's the other team. Uh, so we should we should give these teams equal <laughs> equal prominence, shouldn't we, on uh, space knots? But we are mentioning them. We're mentioning the the opposing views. Uh, however, uh, there has been, as, as you mentioned, new evidence that perhaps the liquid is actually the situation, uh, and and that comes not from radar. Uh, reflections off surfaces deep under the ice. It Come comes from. from... A Martian app. <laughs> it comes from a Martian app. How did you know that? A tap, you know. Uh, oh, a tap. Sorry, I thought for I said a, an app. For <laughs> Americans, force it. A faucet, yeah. Well, that could be where it comes from, but it's uh, it's more likely to be uh, ice that's melted because of geothermal activity. That's really the thing that that is the clincher with this, if that's the case. But that's the, the big question. So the evidence now has taken a turn um, really from looking at the radar reflections deep down under the ice to looking at the surface topography of the ice sheet itself uh, in other words, the you know the the, the height above uh, above the baseline uh, that this that this ice sheet is, and it's because uh, the scientists who've been working on this have recognised that on Earth, where there is liquid water underneath an ice flow, and there are several situations where that is the case, mm. uh, it has an effect on the shape of the ice surface itself. Um, so, uh, and what what you've got is this really interesting, um, interesting situation uh, because the, the 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 water underneath the ice basically it's sitting on top of the rock bed that supports the ice. So you've got a rock bed, a, a subglacial lake, and then ice over the top of it, and the ice is moving. This is the situation on Earth, Andrew. And yeah. what happens is because there's water underneath, uh, uh, well, uh, because of the water in the in the lake underneath the ice, um, that reduces the friction between the ice sheet and the rock surface itself, and so it changes the speed of the ice flow above it, and that speed is, the ice is moving because of gravity. That's what happens with glaciers. Um, And so what you've got is a situation where because of that reduction in in the friction, um, it changes the shape of the ice surface above the lake. And what you tend to get is a depression in the ice with um, a raised area further downstream if i can put it that way in the direction that the uh, that the ice is flowing in mm-hmm. and so that's the situation on earth and so what these scientists have done is gone off 
back to their Mars radar data <clears throat> and look to see if they can find something similar above these putative lakes, the le- lakes that are assumed to exist. And they've found it. <laughs> um, it's uh, This is a group at the University of Cambridge. Uh, actually, it's not the radar measurements that they used to find the surface shape of the ice. They used a laser altimeter uh, measurement so it's it's what you might call lidar it's not it's light uh, reflections rather than radio reflections yeah Um, and so that lets them see the exact shape of the ice surface and um they're basically what they're saying is that they match the computer models for how that body of water uh that is thought to be underneath the ice would change the surface. And, it, and actually, um, it turns out that, you know, this, this disturbance in the ice surface is exactly over where the radar reflections are bright. Um, and these scientists are saying this really adds to the evidence that there is, uh, there is liquid underneath there that's changing the friction between the ice and the, and the rock surface. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a very nice piece of work. Um, yeah. You know, whether you believe it or not, it's very nice. Well, it's a nice was, you know, assumption. I was reading something the other day about glaciers on Mars and how different they are to Earth because of the different gravity. And uh, they, yeah. they thought for a long, long time that the glaciers on Mars just sat there because they mm. couldn't move because there was nothing underneath. But the new theory is that there is probably water underneath and because of the low gravity, it doesn't run away as fast as it does on Earth. Okay. And therefore, the glaciers on Mars do move, but much, much more slowly than they do on Earth. So we get the impression that they're not doing anything, but they, they actually are. Okay. Well, that, that does, and that ties in, you know, if, if you've got this crinkling effect of the surface because of a, mm-hmm. an underlying body of water, um, that might be quite a long-lived phenomenon, you know. It might be because it all happens so slowly. Well, they're sure. also suggesting because of the differences in gravity and the differences in the movement of glaciers, the features we see on Mars are very different to yeah. more rigid features of Earth. So yeah, it's really, really interesting. They do tie in nicely. They're totally different studies, I believe, but um, yeah. they do seem to correlate when it comes to the liquid water situation on the red planet. So um, very exciting indeed. Does that mean a future mission to Mars, should this um, new science prove to be absolute, would they target those regions as landing points? Well, you'd expect they might do, that's right. Uh, although, you know, you, you're still going to uh, you're still going to be a bit hamstrung in how you explore that liquid if it is a kilometer and a half down yeah uh, you you're um you're basically uh, uh you know you, you you've got to drill a big hole in the in the ice uh and that always raises the issue of bringing terrestrial microbes to what is currently a pristine body of water if it exists um mm. So I, I thought we might. I've just looked up Andrew the, uh, the 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 new paper that's come from the opposing group. Oh yes. <laughs> uh, just and we should just give it a mention because it's oh, entitled uh, it's entitled "Explaining Bright Radar Reflections Below the South Pole of Mars Without Liquid Water." That was published in Nature Astronomy uh, uh, on September the twenty sixth. I've, I've got a feeling that the other paper was published in Nature Astronomy as well. So. <laughs> I'm uh, looking quite, at that now, and I think quite, you're right. Quite yes, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, and this is a team uh, 
uh, from the Cornell Center for Astrophysics and Planetary Science uh, in yes, you know, in the United States. So uh, they argue that these are reflections, and I think this might be the work. If I just look down a bit further. Uh, that you mentioned, which um, involved simulations. Here it is. Uh, the uh, researchers created simulations with layers composed of four materials, atmosphere, water ice, carbon dioxide ice, and basalt. Uh, and uh, apparently it's the, the the carbon dioxide layers that produce the, the bright reflections, exactly as you said earlier on in our chat. There you go. Mm. So I'm well read. I just don't remember it very well. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I suppose that's going to just create more um, debate. Yeah, uh, and it's it's so people are going to think of more and more um, ingenious ways that you can actually try and distinguish between the two phenomena. And I think looking for crinkles in the surfaces of the ice is actually a really good one. Um, mm. That uh, that's in support of the liquid water theory. So I think this is going to go on for quite some time, Andrew. Uh, and yes, in the end, it will be uh, it will be just um, down to future explorers of Mars, probably robotic, to try and find out what really what really is happening. Yeah, because ultimately, when humans do go to Mars, they might be looking at finding water, or at least sourcing water that's been found by those robotic surveys to uh, create fuel to get home they might or to go, or to go somewhere else yeah yeah, yeah. the the um it's not it would be highly uh salty it would you know it'll be very very high high in uh, minerals probably perchlorates which is this natural antifreeze that lowers the freezing point of water a long way below zero uh, because you know it's underneath ice it's at the south pole of mars our South Pole's pretty cold, but Mars is fifty percent further away from the sun again, so it's even colder. Yeah. Um, so you've got to look for a heat, you know, a, a way to keep the water liquid if, if, if it in, indeed it is there. So the technicalities once we're on Mars will be significant. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Mm. All right, lots of problems to solve, but uh, maybe a step closer to finding out absolutely that there is liquid water <laughs> on Mars. Maybe. Or, or not. <laughs> you disagree? Uh, Fred's address is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. But uh, we'll watch with interest. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let me tell you a little bit about our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, I'm going to do this as I speak. So if I put the URL nordvpn.com slash space nuts, into my search engine or into my browser and press, press enter, it will bring up a special offer for you as a Space Nuts listener. Uh, and it's an exclusive cybersecurity package that comes with all the other bells and whistles that NordVPN offers. Now, they've got uh, great credentials. They've uh, been highly recognised by some of the, uh, the big names in media around the world, including BuzzFeed, Forbes, TEDx, Huffington Post, Wired, BBC. You'll see all that on their website. 
But uh, what they aim to do first and foremost, and this is what they're famous for, is to protect your online activity. If you're not using VPN, you are leaving yourself uh, wide open for exploitation, whether that's from a hacker or just from an opportunist, and it can happen anywhere, uh, especially in public Wi-Fi areas. But uh, the deal also gets you so much more at the moment. So if you click on the grab the deal button, which I've just done, and keep in mind there's a 30-day money-back guarantee for, uh, from NordVPN if you're not happy. Now, they have several plans. They have a two-year plan, a one-year plan, or you can go month by month. But I would certainly recommend the two-year plan because you get so much more bang for your buck. Uh, and there are um, different levels within each of those um, those those time frames. You can get the start package, the plus package, or the complete package. So it's up to you which way you go. But uh, the higher you go, the bigger the saving. So 69% saving on the um, the plan that gives you the complete package. So that's your high speed VPN. Protection from uh, malware. You get a, uh, a tracker and ad blocker. Um, cross-platform password manager. They're really handy because so many passwords that you need these days and it's hard to remember them. This will do it for you. Uh, data breach scanner and one terabyte of encrypted cloud storage. So check it out. It is a really great package available to you as a Space Nuts listener. Just put in the uh, uh, URL Nord vpn.com slash space nuts that's nordvpn.com slash space nuts and then click on the grab the deal button and find the formula that works best for you but um, nordvpn the best in the business and uh, we're very proud to have them as our sponsor on space nuts oh don't forget the code word space nuts to secure the deal now back to the show okay we checked all four systems and here we go space nuts now, Fred, uh, let's uh, move our attention to a very popular topic on Space Nuts and in general, and that is uh, black holes. And the uh, story that we're looking at now comes from uh, Oxford University, I believe, and observations from the James Webb Space Telescope, but it involves organics near black holes. So organics being, oh, I don't know, some kind of plant product that's been turned into pasta? Yeah, that, that's, that'll do it. Uh, but it's also molecules that contain carbon. That's the, oh, okay. that's the definition of an organic molecule. Yes. Um, so you're right, Oxford University, and, and this apparently is the first UK-led research uh, to use uh, spectroscopic data from the Webb Telescope's MIRI instrument, mid-infrared instrument. Um, and it's, yeah, it's all about the structure of stuff inside galaxies and in particular they're looking at active galaxies and what that mm -hmm. means is that you've got a galaxy with a supermassive black hole at its center that is actively consuming uh, the region the, the material from the region around it uh, and causing it the black hole itself to uh, to become luminous not because the black hole is shining but because the accretion disk this disk of material being sucked in uh, to the black hole is generating a lot of energy because of the velocities uh, that the material is achieving uh, before it disappears into the black hole. And the, the fact that that energy we see as, well, radio radiation, uh, infrared radiation, X-radiation. Uh, so it's uh, it's what makes a, a, a galaxy active, uh, the gobbling up black hole in the middle. So um, 
that would be the last place, Andrew, you'd expect an environment like that would be the last place that you'd expect to find delicate molecules. And yeah. molecules are delicate in the sense that if you blast them with ultraviolet radiation, they fall apart. You've got lots of atoms rather than uh, atoms bound together in molecules. Mm. <clears throat> so the Webb telescope, being an infrared telescope, was very good at detecting the signatures of molecules with the spectrometer. Uh, and that is what has been done with this particular work, uh, which actually um, centers around uh, data from uh, three luminous active galaxies. Um, and um, what they've done, the scientists doing this, they've looked at uh, what are called PAHs, and PAH, uh, or PAR, <laughs> is, a, is an acronym for polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. <clears throat> and these are the... Um, you know the organic molecules. We know that we know that they exist in the universe. They they form in cold molecular clouds, but they might well be um, a building block of some of the um, compounds which eventually uh, go into life. Uh, the, what you might call prebiotic compounds. So they may have they may have been very important in the way life kicked off. The these molecules but being molecules you'd think if you put them near a black hole they'd fall to bits uh, and you just have a pile of atoms but it turns out that you don't um mm. the uh the molecules despite some earlier theoretical predictions that suggest that these molecules would be destroyed near a black hole uh in the, in the middle of an active galaxy um the, the, these new data have shown that they survive uh, or they can survive uh, even where you know the conditions are at the most acute, where you've got ultraviolet or X-rays uh, that you would expect would just rip them to pieces, uh, and so one of the you know the question is why are these why are these things surviving? That's uh, the question, indeed. Yeah, and the suggestion is that one reason could be that there's there's a lot of them that there is a. That, you know, you've got these giant molecular clouds which are in the vicinity of the black hole, but not near enough for the mo the molecules, the heavier molecules, protecting the PAHs uh, to be ripped apart. So the PAHs are kind of being sheltered by uh, other other molecules. Um, mm. There's there's some more subtleties uh, on on this in terms that some of the PAH molecules might have been destroyed, uh, but um, the suggestion is uh that uh and, and the, the reason is that, that there are you know these things come in different shapes and sizes um and it seems that the larger ones there uh, the larger molecules actually outnumber the, the the more fragile smaller ones and that suggests that yes those ones the smaller ones have been destroyed uh, or, or a higher proportion of them have been destroyed by the radiation so it's all about how things behave in an environment that we can't even get our heads around uh, where there's high levels of radiation uh, in the vicinity of a black hole. Uh, yeah. But it is a study that's brought its own surprises, yeah. I'm sure. Uh, and we get so many questions about black holes and, and they are one of the great mysteries of the universe. And uh, I, I suppose it's going to make people wonder, yeah, if molecules are destroyed by a black hole, then what can possibly survive 
And yes. Saying, well, <laughs> molecules can. Yeah, so, yeah we are. Yeah, that's right. That suggests something else could survive if the circumstances were right? Well, like, or, like human bodies made of molecules, for example. Yeah, well, that's a good question, isn't there? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't Before know. Before you get spaghettified. Um, yeah, and, and that that is – yeah, we, I, I suppose – the time will come where we're able to travel long haul in space if they solve some of the um, distance and speed requirements. Um, and, and one of the projects that would come out of that is to get up and get up close and personal with a black hole. And I, I can't imagine <laughs> what you would see. And well, well we yeah, portrayed in science fiction and in images that have been created. And, and now we've got two images of them it just basically looks like an orange coated donut <laughs> that's right well, that's, what you see is what you get i think um, and, and that's not a donut. basically it but um yeah yeah it, the, the mystery remains it were, it's it is yeah. uh, yes it, i mean there are simulations which you and i have both seen and of course the yeah. interstellar movie had a fairly good simulation of the vicinity of a black hole but there are even more accurate ones on the web uh, that show you what it would look like from a reasonably safe region. Uh, but, you know, we're discovering ever more details about this thing. Who would have thought that molecules could survive in that maelstrom of energy that's coming from the accretion disk of a black hole, let alone the gravity? Uh, the gravity itself, that's a different thing. That's what spaghettifies you. Uh, but, you know, if your molecules have already been pulled apart by the radiation, uh, the, the spaghettification becomes a secondary problem. Yeah. Would would it hurt? Yes, it would. Whatever it was, it would hurt. And uh, yeah. that's why we don't do it, um, because it would hurt. Yeah, well, we, we don't do it because we can't get there. But and there's that too, yes. If we could ever get there, someone, someone would try and test the logic, I suppose. Oh, dear, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not volunteering. No, and I'm not going to be one of those volunteers that stands in line and someone taps you on the shoulder and volunteers you. <laughs> no, not interested. I'll let someone else be the guinea pig, but uh, yeah. Uh, and you know, you know, Fred, this is going to prompt more questions from people mm. about black holes. With mm. what That's I love cool. is people come up with theories about black holes and ideas and concepts, and um, and they sort of wrap it all up with dark matter, which um, is the other big mystery and, and dark energy. Uh, those are the big three at the moment. Uh, in in terms of um, queries from Space Nuts listeners, so Indeed. yeah, look, if you've got any questions based on what we've just heard, by all means, send them into us because uh, yeah, we'd we'd love to see what you're thinking in terms of of that. But um, it's it's a it's a quandary. It is that's what it is a quandary. Okay. Uh, oh, by the way, if you want to uh, read more about that particular study, uh, you can do so in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics, where it's been published, and uh, you can read that story on phys.org as well. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, uh, it is question time. And uh, I've got a couple of questions, uh, text questions we're going to tackle today. And uh, we'll start with uh, with this particular one. Uh, gee, I, I, I like this bloke's uh, view. Ramiro from Houston, Texas, 
writes to us and says, currently sitting across the street from NASA Space Centre making a fuel delivery at a petro station off NASA Road 1. <laughs> I was, uh, I've probably driven past it, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, I was listening to the DART episode and came up with a question regarding the change in path of objects. Well, we now know, Romero, that it was successful. We um, heard about that uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so his question is, how big does a meteorite or asteroid or comet have to be in order to change Earth's movement through space? Uh, does it uh, speed up or spin faster or slow down? Uh, does it change um, time? Uh, will it cause the pivot of the axis? And so it goes on. Uh, it, uh, if we could change a rock's course, as we did with Dimorphos, could a really big one change Earth's trajectory besides the point of climate change and destruction? Uh, thank you both for the show. Keep me uh, Keeps me awake on long trips at work. Love hearing the podcast. Thanks, Ramiro. Uh, how big would a rock be or need to be to knock Earth off its orbit or shift it slightly or knock it off its axis? And we know probably that this has happened to planets in our solar system at some stage. That's right. Yes. So it's certainly not a daft question because we think that's what happened to turn Uranus on its side and possibly even to turn Venus upside down. Although, that's Although I might jump in there because I read a report the other day that said that they're now suggesting that it wasn't one object that knocked um, Uranus on its back. It might have been multiple objects. Mm. <clears throat> That time. ties in with some of the conversations we've had recently, though, Andrew. And they also suggested that it, it wouldn't have to be anything huge. It could be something the same size as our moon that could have yeah. done it. Yeah. It's usually thought to be something a bit bigger than that, an Earth-sized object. Uh, Earth is 81 times the mass of the moon, so, um, you know, it has clearly has much more clout. Yeah. Uh, but, um, the yeah, so that's... Uh, that is certainly one of the things that you would expect from a large body. Uh, I mean, what, thinking about you know the, the collisions that are assumed to have taken place in the early solar system, uh, that collision between the hypothetical object Thea and uh, the Earth, uh, which generated the Moon, um, that was thought to be a Mars-sized object hitting the Earth. Mm. And... Um, it almost certainly changed the spin of the Earth uh, and possibly to some extent the orbit as well, although it's a lot harder to shift the orbit of an object um, than it is to change the spin um, and, you know, change the tilt or change the rate of spin um, because you, you, you're trying to deflect the whole object itself rather than just change the way it behaves. Uh, in terms of rotation. And that's why the DART experiment is so significant because um, there's, you know, the evidence is now there that its orbit has been changed by, th- what is it, 32 minutes uh, from uh, 11 minutes, 50, uh, sorry, 11 hours, 55 minutes. It's come, it's come down to be faster than that. Um, mm. And so that has happened. That's with a half-ton uh, half spacecraft. Uh but that was with an object only 170 metres in diameter. When you think of an object 12,500 kilometres in diameter, uh, namely our own planet, and, of course, you know, considerably more massive, uh, then to change its orbit needs something really big. 
And in fact, I think you'd be talking about something whose diameter would be between that of Mars and the Earth. It would be almost like needing another planet in order to bash into uh, our planet, with it, give it a big enough swipe to, to change the orbit. It's much easier to change the spin rate. And I think, I don't know, I have really talked about this, but uh, it seems very likely that the Chicxulub impact that wiped out the dinosaurs, a 15-kilometer object, may have actually changed the spin rate of the Earth, perhaps made a few milliseconds difference to the length of a day, wow. um, maybe even shifted the pole slightly. Um, we know that the pole does wander around on a scale of a few meters, but something like that could have made a bigger difference. I, I'm inclined to try and follow that up because I'm sure research has been done on this. What did the um, what did the Chicxulub impact do to the Earth's spin and maybe even its orbit? Because you know, just maybe there might be a very small change in its orbital elements, but mm. that would have to be modelled rather than anything you could measure. We know there are rogue planets out there, poor old we things, and kicked out of their own solar systems, solar yeah. systems, and they're just floating around. Could one of them, you know, rock up one day and give us a nudge? Well, uh, that's right. Um, you know, in principle, that could happen, given that we've already had visitors from other solar systems in the shape of your favourite interstellar asteroid, Oumuamua, uh, and uh, various other comet, cometary Borisov. things as well. Uh, Borisov, that's right, Comet Borisov. Well done, yeah. Uh, that, um, that the first interstellar comet observed. So, uh, but we'd see, we'd, we'd know about that quite a long way ahead. Yes, um, we wouldn't be able to get out of the way, though. I don't think we'd be able to get out of the way. That's right. If it was on a collision course, I think we'd just try and get off the planet as quickly as we could. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but where would we go? <laughs> well, yes, exactly. And we wouldn't have time to sit back and wait for the dust to settle, I don't imagine. No, there might not be much for it to settle onto, really. <laughs> we just have to wait for it to all... Yeah. So so the, the answer to... Um, to Ramiro's question is, uh, it's it's big. It's got to be big in order to change the orbit, and it'd be it'd have to be a monster. Some something. What did you say between the size of Mars and Earth? Yeah, maybe um, certainly planetary sized uh, rather than asteroid sized. Mm, okay. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to follow up on Chicxulub and see if that asteroid did uh, make any changes to our. Yes, see the theory. What the theory says. You know, if we got glanced by something that did change our spin rate, that would be hard to live with too. I imagine that would have impact, uh, you know, if it didn't destroy the, destroy the planet, there'd, there'd have to be some impact on life on Earth, wouldn't there? I mean, the impact itself would, if it was big enough to change the spin of the planet, the impact itself, significant, the impact itself would be... I couldn't do it through a gravitational effect by passing us close by? Um, um Yes, but you'd be talking about very, very small changes. Okay. Uh, yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, very. All right, uh, thanks, Ramiro. Lovely to hear from you. Hope all is well in Houston, Texas. Uh, let's move on to a question from Matt. Uh, hi, Andrew and Professor Watson. Um, thanks for the great podcast. It's the best podcast in our solar system by far. I, I think there's one on Neptune that's out there. <laughs> 
Uh, we'll, um, we'll get there sooner or later. Uh, I noticed that uh, next year's hybrid eclipse totality will pass right over the Learmouth, uh Solar Observatory. Does Fred know anyone who works there and perhaps give us an insight into what extra research can be conducted during the eclipse, given it will occur right over a dedicated solar observatory compared to the portable setups? Uh, thanks for the great podcast. I look forward to it every week. Kind regards, Matt who is uh, down in Gisborne, Victoria. Uh, Thank you, Matt. Mm, Okay, so we're going to have a uh, solar eclipse next year that's going to pass over a solar observatory. How fortuitous. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, quite a coincidence. It doesn't pass over much land, the the moon's shadow, and the bit of land, uh, the peninsula in Australian soil that it passes over is going to be very crowded indeed. But yes, um, that is right. The the Learmonth Solar Observatory uh, is on the path of totality uh, or near it. I'm not sure whether it's exactly on it, but it's certainly very close. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's jointly operated by the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, uh, their Space Weather Services, and the US Air Force. Um, So that is, um, you know, where... The, um, the the collaborations take place uh, to find out more about the sun. And in fact, uh, the, the stuff they do is quite interesting. Uh, they have um, what are called solar velocity images, uh, which tell you what the surface of the sun is doing in terms of its up and down vibrations. Um, they're part of a network uh, called Gong, which is a really, it's a really uh, appropriate name, uh, Gong. And I, I do know people who are connected w- with that network, although not necessarily working at Learmonth. Uh, that Gong is an acronym for Global Oscillation Network Group, and it sort of rings like a gong, but it's the, the sun um, vibrating, basically, which it does, if I remember rightly, on a scale of something like five minutes, it it actually oscillates. Uh, There's a whole field, Andrew, which we haven't talked about much, um, even though there are colleagues here in Sydney who are very closely uh, involved with this uh, work. Um, The the general field is what's called astro-seismology. It's looking at the way stars vibrate, the the star quakes. Um, And, yes, Gong is... is, uh, doing that for the sun i've i might be making this up but i think there's something called song as well which is the stellar oscillation network group uh, and they look at the way stars vibrate so this astro seismology uh, about which you can learn a lot so um the gong instruments uh, will certainly be looking at the sun they have radio telescopes at learmonth uh, and a solar radio spectrograph uh, with um, it's a fairly low frequency, 25 to 180 megahertz, uh, which is all about um, looking for solar radio bursts. Uh, so you can bet your life all that stuff will be <laughs> concentrated on the sun during the eclipse. Sadly, I don't know anybody there, um, um, so we, we might not get any inside stories, but uh, I'm sure we will hear... Um, you know, the results of experiments that are, that are being done uh, while the eclipse takes place. What, the... what kind of experiments would they be doing, though? Well, they, they, the, the instruments that they've got are specifically attuned to this idea of looking at the, the way the sun vibrates. Um, and they're, they're also measuring radio flares from the sun. Mm. Uh, it's the typical solar observatory work. They don't have a a big telescope that uh, f- produces really detailed images of the sun's surface. We now have one of those uh, on the summit of Haleakala 
uh, at uh, on, on the island of Maui. It is the Daniel K. Inui telescope. It is a very, very impressive four-meter class telescope used to observe the sun. And some of the images that come from it are quite staggering, showing the, 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 the convection columns on the sun's surface. Um, that uh, That's just an aside as to the kind of state of, of ground-based solar research. Of course, most of the research uh, that's going on with the sun comes from spacecraft. It's the mm. various uh, spacecraft like SOHO, the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory uh, spacecraft like that that are observing the sun. Yeah. Uh, and uh, for those who aren't aware, the uh, total solar eclipse situation is it's just a coincidence and in years ahead uh, it won't be the same because the moon's moving away from us. So the total block of the moon covering the sun will will dissipate in time. So right at this time where we're, you know, the time we're living in now, it's a, it's just sheer coincidence that we're seeing this the way we do when we get a total solar eclipse. Is that right, Fred? It's very spooky, yes. It's a temporary phenomenon, just happens mm. to be taking place while, when there are intelligent beings on the surface of the planet to watch it and think about it. Uh, but I think the estimates that I've said, I did the calculation once, but I didn't take into account changes in the Earth's orbit when I did the calculation. But it's, I think it's something like two to 300 million years down the track, we won't get solar total eclipses anymore. They'll all be annular, which means that the moon's disk will not quite cover the cover the disk of the sun. So right now, our proximity from the moon and its proximity from the sun means that they're almost exactly the same size in terms of their disk in our They sky. do vary because both yep. of the, you know, the Earth's in an elliptical orbit around the sun, the moon's in an elliptical orbit around the Earth. So their, their, size, their apparent sizes vary slightly. But, mm. yes, that the totality is a possibility and it happens. Crazy, isn't it? It's just, yeah, I love it. Uh, and, of course, we've got a big one coming up here in 2028. Yeah. Is, yeah, it goes yeah. right over yeah. you and right over us. Yes, absolutely. And it starts yeah. uh, in the northwest of the state and it will totally black out uh, the town of Burke and then it'll move its way down to the southeast across us and black out Dubbo and Sydney. I hope it's a clear day. I really i am looking so forward to it. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to do a live broadcast, although you'll probably be very busy that day. Uh, we'll see how we go. Space notes tend to get a high priority, Andrew. Oh, very good. To yeah. <laughs> yes. We've worked our way up to number one on Fred's to-do list. Yeah, my to-do list. That's right. Only taken six years. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Uh, thank you, Matt. Good question. Um, and yeah, it's it's quite fascinating. Uh, and I, I honestly didn't know we had a, a solar observatory in Australia, Fred. How about that? Yeah, there you go. Mm. Lots of stuff that you don't know about. <laughs> I was looking at the, the lack of the, the lack of my knowledge is is deep. It's very deep, matched only by mine. No, oh, no, 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 no. You're way ahead of me. Um, now, if you do have questions for us, don't forget to send them in. You can do that through our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. And just uh, send us uh, audio questions. You can do that through the AMA tab and the send us your audio question tab, or you can send us text questions via the AMA tab as well. We take both. Don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from because we do love to know that. Although sometimes we can pick it up from the accent, just occasionally. 
uh, especially those Australians. They're always whinging about something. Uh, and while you're at uh, the website, um, check out uh, Astronomy Daily. There are uh, fresh episodes of that almost every day. And I, I love that uh, the feedback we're getting says that uh, people are using Astronomy Daily to get a little dose of astronomy while they wait for space nuts, which is great. I love it. Um, they're working well together. But, yeah, Astronomy Daily with Hallie um, trying to pull the wool over my eyes or give me a bit of a... a a raz. She's always trying something. Uh, but uh, yes, that's the place to go. And while you're there, check out the Space Nuts shop where you can get one of those mm-hmm. if you're looking on YouTube. That's a tote bag. Uh, there's also a mug somewhere up there. Oh, hang on. I've got to move the camera just that way a bit. See, there it is, right there on the corner. Uh, and plenty of other bits and bobs, including Fred's latest book. And much, much more in the Space Nuts shop online at spacenutspodcast.com. Fred, that brings us to the end of yet another program. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure, and I look forward to talking to you again very soon. I do too. Fred Watson, astronomer <laughs> at large, part of the team here at the Space Nuts podcast. And we thank Hugh in the studio, who's, um, who's made all the tea today. Unfortunately, he can only drink it for himself because we're too far away. Uh, From me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for joining us. Hope to uh, talk to you again next week on another edition of Space Nuts. Until then, bye-bye. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.